Welcome back to another episode of Veteran Oversight Now, an official podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. I'm your host, Fred Baker. Each month on this podcast, we'll bring you highlights of the OIG's recent oversight activities and interview key stakeholders in the office's critical work for veterans. This is a special hotline edition of Veteran Oversight Now, and joining us today is Trina Rollins. Trina is the Director for Hotline Coordination within the VAOIG's Office of Healthcare Inspections. Trina is a board-certified physician assistant who worked at the VA North Texas Healthcare System for eight years prior to joining the VAOIG in 2011. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Fred. I'm glad to be here. Well, Trina, today we have another uh, very difficult report to have a conversation about that ultimately led to a very tragic event. Um, Before we get into the report and its details, tell me a little bit about uh, where we're we're conducting this inspection uh, and, and what that facility looks like. Sure. So the inspection was actually at the John Cochran Division of the VA St. Louis Healthcare System. And if you're not familiar with that healthcare system, there's actually two divisions. So John Cochran and Jefferson Barracks. Um, this is a level 1A complexity. So that is the most complex facility type in the VA system. And it is a full service inpatient medicine and surgical services along with outpatient psychiatric care and over 65 other subspecialties. Um, These two divisions, this healthcare system is part of Vision 15. And um, this is the highest level complexity type facility that VA has. And, and explain a little bit about how this referral came to uh, your desk. Sure. So, um, with all referrals to OIG, it uh, comes in through our hotline division, and then they decide which directorate within OIG is the best to review it. This being a healthcare issue, a suicide um, came to our division. And when we initially reviewed it, we decided to first ask the facility to respond to the allegations. And what that entails is giving them about 60 days to look at the allegations, do any type of review that they do internally, and then um, provide us a written response. When we got that written response, we were not satisfied. Honestly, it left us with more questions than answers. So that's when we decided we needed to open up a hotline inspection and um, go on site and do these interviews that we normally do to do these types of evaluations and um, get the information ourselves. So that's one thing. Before we get into the details, I want to talk about just a little bit is is given the, the very tragic events, how how hard is it to go in and extract these details from from individuals who may or may not uh, want to discuss the the events of the day? It's very difficult, but you know, in this case, we know the outcome. I mean, the the facility staff were right there; they saw the result. Um, you know, a, a nurse. Uh, triaged this patient, brought him into the emergency department room to be evaluated by a physician, and um, then two and a half hours later, uh, a staff person found this patient unresponsive in the room and who was later declared um, deceased. As we talked about earlier, this is this is a very very uh, tragic report, very very sad ending. Certainly. 
uh, many missteps, uh, many learning points, and uh, we'll go through the we'll go through discussing those. As we mentioned, this does this uh, this report does uh, focus on a um, veteran who uh, showed up at a uh, at the emergency department uh, in early fall of 2021, very early in the morning, little after 5 a.m., uh, complaining of uh, urinary retention, retention and depression. Uh, go ahead and characterize with for me, if you will, kind of the the initial events. Uh, of of this uh, engagement there at the emergency department. Sure, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the patient too, because I think it's important um, as the events fold uh, unfold. Um, again, this veteran is a male. He had a history of prostate issues. He also had a history of depression post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, and chronic pain from spinal stenosis. Uh, this patient, this veteran, had been multi uh, hospitalized multiple times from 2001 to 2020 for suicidal thoughts and subs substance abuse. Um, he had previously had suicide attempts. So again, this is all of his history. He shows up that morning in the fall, um, as you said, early in the morning ar around 5.14 a.m. presents to the emergency department saying that he's having difficulty uh, with his urination and that he's depressed, um, he's feeling down, and he says he doesn't want to die. This is the conversation he had with the nurse that triaged him. And triaging um, in the emergency room setting means that they, they take in the list of symptoms and then they... Um, the, the nurse will um, decide on a level between one and five of the severity of the symptoms, and then that determines how um, how urgent the situation is um, for the patient to be seen. Just for clarity, this patient was not going to a, a facility he had never been before. So all of these events should have been in his record, and and they should have set off various flags with respect to his uh to, to how to move forward with his care correct i mean to be fair the the triage nurse usually is the first person that the a patient sees when they come into the emergency department that gotcha. nurse may not have the time to go through the chart and get all of this information but as you know, as you're taking in this information, you would at least look at the problem list in the medical record. And what that problem list would show in this case is this patient has had suicidal ideation in the past, has had hospitalizations for suicide attempts, has PTSD, has depression, has substance abuse, again, which are all risks for suicide. So one of one of the first missteps, as, as I read the report, uh, happened at at this point, right right off the start, uh, with her uh, suicide risk screening. Correct. Um, you know, when a, a patient comes in um, having a complaint of depression, and again, this this gentleman actually said, "I don't want to die." 
to this nurse. Um, she performed, or she's supposed to perform, or um, a suicide risk assessment. And what that is, it's a set of questions that um, will then help to evaluate the risk of suicide and the urgency in which this patient needs to be evaluated for those types of symptoms. Um, this nurse, we believe, did the screening by memory, meaning that they asked the questions by memory. You know, these types of screening tools are um, developed and studied by researchers, and they're asked a certain way, um, and they're worded a certain way to prevent bias from creeping in. So again, you know when you ask a question, you can ask it in more than one way, and uh, the way you ask it can infer some bias to it. So that's why they want you to, when, when using the screening tool, read the questions verbatim and then wait for the response from the veteran or the patient. So the, so the nurse did not do that. And, and if I remember in the report, they said they uh, did them from memory, but then in the investigation, they could not recall uh, the exact questions by memory. Correct. And so, again, uh, you know, it, it just um, makes us question whether or not it, the questionnaire, the, the evaluation is appropriately delivered. And, um, and then, you know, the assessment that was received, the question, the way the, the veteran answered the questions, um, did it result in the right type of, of assessment and evaluation of the patient? And, and this, this patient was assigned an emergency severity index level three. Correct. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, again, I, I kind of mentioned it. This, this emergency severity index is the scale from one to five, one being the most urgent, meaning, you know, a heart attack, a stroke, those, you know, a, a severe trauma situation. Those patients need to be seen immediately um, because there's some type of immediate life-saving intervention that's needed. A level five is the least urgent. Urgent. So those patients could wait in the waiting room. Um, sometimes those those types of patients could be referred back to their primary care provider or to an urgent care center type setting instead of the emergency department. Um, a level three patient is considered stable. There's no acute risk or immediate threat to life. So at this point, level three, you said was considered stable and they moved the patient to the exam room. They actually did, yeah. So they moved the patient to an exam room, which, you know, for a level three, they don't necessarily have to go back immediately. But again, this was very early in the morning. The um, emergency department wasn't that busy. They uh, moved the patient to an exam room and did what's called a post-void residual, meaning they asked the patient to try and urinate, and then they ultrasounded an ultrasound of his um, bladder in order to determine how much residual urine was left in there. Um, and that was pretty much done immediately. Um, and then that nurse documents that they alerted the emergency room physician that the patient was in the room waiting to be seen. Unfortunately, no one can prove that. Um, the video surveillance in the emergency department does not show that the that the nurse um, went to where the physician was located and made any type of effort to alert the physician who was actually resting, sleeping at the time, um, that the patient, you know, to alert the, the physician that the patient was actually present. 
and to be clear on that, the, the, the physician was allowed to be sleeping on that shift. It, they weren't doing anything. Correct. Yeah, this is a yeah. night shift. Um, when you know when things do slow down, it's not uncommon for an emergency department provider to take a nap um, just to refresh themselves before the next wave of patients come in. So at, at 5.30 a.m., Nurse 1, the first nurse, documented uh, the that an emergency department physician was notified. Uh, and you say that there was no evidence that notification happened. So what happens after? What? Correct. There was no video. Right. There was no video evidence that that actually so what occurred. what happened after that? So um, there's a big gap in time, 45 minutes. And then um, a, a second patient comes into the emergency department. A different nurse triages that patient. And, and then that nurse is the one that goes back to the physician and says, two patients are waiting to be seen. That's around 6.14 in the morning. So an hour after this, the our patient presented to the emergency department. Now, understand the second nurse did not go in and see the patient, the original patient. She just told the physician that now there's two patients waiting to be seen. So now, so, that, so then it's 7.30 and the original, the first nurse uh, was changing shifts, provided an incoming day shift emergency nurse with the status. So from 5.14 until 7.30, uh, no one has seen physically this patient. No one has gone yeah. back. Yes, no one has gone back so to I, see this patient during that time frame. I don't want to get too frame. far ahead of our findings. However, I want to bring up the uh, the the door-to-dock uh, policy. So explain that. Sure. Uh, and then put that uh, in context with how long this patient has been there without being seen. So, so VHA has their own emergency department metric, meaning they would like patients to be seen um, timely. So their own metric of wait time is from the arrival to the emergency room to being seen by a physician is 25 minutes or less. So that's their own internal metric, internal requirement. You know, sometimes that can be met. You know, in this case, it should have been met because the, the emergency room only had two patients or one patient at the time our, our, our patient presented. But, you know, at other times, the emergency room may be slammed and it, it may not be met um, because of the amount of patients being seen or, you know, coming into the emergency room at that time. But the expectation is 25 minutes or less that a patient presents to the emergency department and then is, is seen or evaluated by a provider. And as of the shift change at 730, uh, it's been more than two hours Correct. the patient hadn't been seen. And I want to bring up one other note that's important to the timeline. Given the patient's history of uh, suicide attempts uh, and suicidal thoughts, uh, should someone have been checking on him? Yes. When patients come to the emergency room, there's some urgency to their problems. Um, this patient was triaged to level three, so he had some, some urgent need, and yet no one went in to see him. No one took vital signs. You know, the expectation should have been at least hourly rounding, um, and this was told to OIG from 
uh, nursing leadership, that the expectation is a patient should be checked on at least every hour. Um, there was no written policy of that, but the expectation was there. Um, you know, this patient, if, at the very least, the um, emergency severity index tool states that a level three patient should have vital signs every two hours. So by 7.30, that two-hour time frame had already passed and still no one had gone in to take another set of vital signs on him. With, you know, with his history and with his um, presenting complaint of depression and not wanting to die, um, yeah, someone should have gone in and at least laid eyes on him if they didn't do another set of vitals, just to check and make sure he was okay, if he was having other symptoms, if he was having pain, um, if, you know, any of his symptoms had worsened. And so at 730, there's a shift change, uh, and, and unfortunately, tragic events unfold following. Kind of give us the timeline of, of what happens next. Well, yeah, unfortunately, it's even a little worse than that. Um, so let's back up. 6.45, 6.50, the emergency department chief arrives because the chief is scheduled to work the next shift. Um, he notices there's two patients on the board um, to be seen that haven't been seen. So he goes and talks to the physician and says, you need to see these patients. Shift change occurs at 7.30. The uh, first nurse um, hands over the patient to the incoming shift. The physician finally gets up out of, out of his um, resting area and um, goes into the room where the patient's located and can't find the patient. So he asked another emergency department staff person to go and try and find the patient. Approximately 10 minutes later is when that staff person finds the patient unresponsive uh, in the exam room with a, a ligature around his neck. A code was called, meaning a code blue, um, so that all emergency staff would present to that room, and they tried to resuscitate the patient, but that was unsuccessful, and he was pronounced dead you know, about 10, 15 minutes later. So to be clear, when the physician said he couldn't find him, uh, the patient didn't leave the initial exam room. He did not. He was located between the wall and the bed. So if you're looking into an exam room and you're just looking at the bed or a chair expecting to see the patient, which I'm assuming is what the physician did, he didn't see the patient. He didn't go into the room and, and look around. Um, it was the actual emergency department tech or staff person that went in and actually found the patient in a, a kneeling position between the bed and the wall um, with a ligature around his, around his neck. And so sadly, a med medical examiner conducted an autopsy and confirmed that this patient died by suicide as a result of hanging himself with a cord that was there in the exam room. Exactly. And, and again, that the cord is of, um, it's a cord of the medical equipment that's in the room. So if you've ever been in an exam room for your doctor or the emergency department, you know, the, the tools they use to look into your eyes and ears are connected to um, a, a, usually a box on the wall. And it does have a, a cord attached to it because they're reusable. And, um, and that is what this patient used to, to harm himself. So we identified three primary areas of deficiencies. 
Correct. The um, administration of the suicide risk assessment screening, the meaning the nurse, the nurse did it incorrectly. Did it incorrectly. Um, the physician didn't evaluate the patient. Um, you know, two and a half hours later, he was found dead. First, he wasn't. We don't believe he was notified, and then even after he was notified, uh, he, he delayed providing care. Exactly. Um, and and again, realize we don't know exactly when this patient uh, killed himself. So we don't know if he if the physician had uh, responded at six fourteen when the second nurse had. Um, uh, alerted him of, of the patients being wait, or waiting to be seen if that could have prevented this from happening. Sure, exactly. We'd and then again, the um, door the door to dock metric for VHA is 25 minutes, and this was two and a half hours later. Yeah, and then finally, we the failure to monitor the patient. Failure to monitor the patient. Yes. And tell me what that looks like when when a patient has a, a history of suicide. Uh, you had mentioned uh, that they would they wouldn't necessarily station someone outside the door, but they would put that patient uh, within a line of sight. Exactly. If you if you look at the report, there's a little drawing of the emergency department, and so the physician was in one room. There was an empty room next to that, and then the patient was placed in the third room. The third room had no line of sight to the nurse's station. So if nursing staff were sitting at the nurse's station, working on their computers, charting, they would not be able to see into that patient room to monitor that patient. So the only other alternative at that time of the day would have been to actually station someone outside the room. Um, something that would have been, um, in my opinion, more appropriate would be to place the patient in the room that was directly across from the nurse's station. So again, you've got line of sight, meaning you could see the patient in the room, but you don't necessarily have to have someone stationed in the room or directly outside the room to monitor the patient. Because again, even though this patient's screening was negative, you know, re realize we question whether the accuracy of the screening uh, because of the way it was administered, um, he did come in saying he was depressed. He does have a history of suicidal ideation. He does have a history of hospitalization. Um, due to previous suicide attempts. So again, I would have wanted to at least keep eyes on this patient. Even if I couldn't do it directly by sitting in the room with him, I would put him in a room with at least more line of, you know, more direct line of sight so that someone could, could have laid eyes on this patient. The, the room he was in was in the corner. So, you know, it, it would have taken someone, um, someone would have had to make the effort to actually go past the room and look into the room to see the patient. It was just harder, harder to see the patient. And to the earlier point, the, the uh, physician poked his head in, didn't see them, and left. Exactly. So, exactly. So again, it's, it's you know, there were there was another room available um, that was that had more direct line of sight to the nurse's station um, that may have been a, a more appropriate room. Um, or again, if if it wasn't that busy, checking in on the patient more frequently, even again every fifteen twenty minutes, even every hour, um, at least the patient they would have been able to see the patient, but it was two and a half hours before this patient was found unconscious. 
So, so up to now, we've discussed uh, missteps by, by individuals, uh, but we also found that there were some deficiencies in, in leadership response to this. Uh, one of them was not conducting a thorough uh, root cause analysis of the event. And, and we've, we've talked about this before in previous reports. Explain that and why that's so important. Yeah, so a root cause analysis is, is important because, again, you want to thoroughly evaluate why this incident happened. We, we know it was a tragic event, and it happened in the emergency department, inside the facility. So why did it happen? Um, you know, we've done, we, OIG has done multiple inspections where we've had um, recommendations made about the way root cause analyses are conducted. Um, our comprehensive healthcare inspection program has reviewed at least one aspect of the RCA program, RCA, the root cause analysis program, in six of the past eight fiscal years. Hotline has published six projects in this fiscal year alone that have some reference to a root cause analysis process error. So again, it's a, it's a common issue, and um, VA has very specific guidelines on how to conduct the root cause analysis. So you, you and I discussed this. There, this isn't a, an ambiguous process. No. There, there are steps. There are, so, so what, given the propensity, uh, obviously, by facilities to not complete these correctly at, at times, what, what, is, what is the incentive to not do it correctly? What, or what is the explanation for not doing it by the standards? So, uh, again, if, if it's not done correctly, um, there's no transparency to the evaluation. So, um, people can infer that maybe uh, you're trying to cover up something. Um, you know, in this case, one of the, the glaring errors is that they didn't have a subject matter expert on the RCA, meaning they had no one with emergency department experience actually as part of the RCA team. And um, we're told that the RCA team brought this up, but we're told by leadership to just move forward because they wanted to uh, get the investigation going. Um, you know, as part of an RCA, you actually write up a charter, and it explains in the charter who is going to be part of the RCA team. They made that reference in the charter. There is supposed to be an emergency department staff person as part of the RCA team. It's written into the charter. But again, you're, you know, on the flip side of that, you don't want someone with direct patient care regarding this patient. So it couldn't be the emergency department doctor that um, was supposed to take care of the patient or either of the two nurses that had uh, been present during that, um, the time frame that the patient had been there. But again, the emergency department has lots of other staff they could have chosen from to be part of the, the, the team. Another facility deficiency we, we, we determined uh, was the lack of a timely institutional disclosure. And we've talked about this in previous reports. Briefly exp explain what those are and why it's important to do those timely. So this is this is important. An institutional disclosure basically is a facility admitting that something went wrong and caused an uh, a tragic error. Um, you know, in this case, this death occurred. That they investigated the death, and there were uh, missteps that occurred by facility staff. That you know, in in 
good possibility could have prevented the tragedy from happening. Um, and so BHA mandates that you make that type of disclosure to the patient. Again, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a death. It could be a, an amputation. I think, you know, you've heard in the news previously of um, people having the wrong leg operated on or the wrong arm operated on. Again, this is this is when an institutional disclosure is important. The, the process that was in place prior to the operation didn't occur, and, and so they have to admit their error. Um, and with an institutional disclosure, they're telling the patient, if the patient's still alive and, and with cognitive function and ability to understand, if not, their, their patient representative, their family member, um, you know, their guardian, whoever is appropriate, um, hears this information, gets this information from the facility, what steps were missed that contributed to this tragedy. And part of that also is giving the patient, the family member, the representative, the guardian, the information that they have the right to file a tort claim, a lawsuit against VA because of the error that occurred. And, um, you know, this death occurred in the fall of 2021. As of fall of 2022, the institutional disclosure still hadn't been completed. Um, I didn't open the chart again just because I, I don't have a, a medical need to actually open it right now. So again, there's a privacy issue that's in play here. But our team, as they were doing their work and going through publication, the last time they checked the, the medical record, fall of 2022, a year later, the institutional disclosure still had not been completed appropriately. Wow. Wow. So one other point I want to discuss before we get to the recommendations is, so so nurse one, the nurse we talked about who, who first administered the screening, uh, we believe incorrectly, uh, purportedly notified the physician when there's there's no, the, the video camera or the video uh, said otherwise. What, what happened to that, that nurse? One would think that there would be uh, some sort of action taken uh, for the nurse. So this is another misstep that we identified. Um, the nurse actually resigned, and and there's no issue with that. You know, a, a person under investigation can resign, but the issue is that their employment record was not marked uh, resigned while under investigation. Um, it was just marked as a plain resigned. So that. Um, that goes with them. So if this nurse were to um, apply at another VA facility, that VA facility would have no knowledge that this nurse had been under investigation previously. Um, and the, the next step in that is um, when the facility completed their own internal reviews, their RCA and administrative investigation, there was a recommendation to report this uh, nurse to the state licensing board. Um, this particular nurse actually had three licenses in three different states, or, you know, nursing licenses in three different states. So, um, the, the way this played out, um, the nurse executive made the decision not to report report the nurse to the state licensing board. Um, this has been an issue in, in many of our reports. Um, 
of going through the process of reporting these providers, these nurses, social workers, whoever it is that um, didn't do their job properly to the state licensing board. The reason given by by the nurse exec on this one was that this they felt this was a conduct issue. But VHA policy is very clear. Whether it's conduct or clinical practice, they still need to be reported to the state licensing board, and it just didn't happen in this case. And, and to be clear, this is this is a recommendation from the facility's own administrative uh, investigation. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So, so in reality, Nurse One uh, could be practicing. Uh, in, could be practicing in, in one of those in, three states. In one of three uh, states. Yes. Yeah. Very, very sad. So, what were our recommendations? Um, so most of the recommendations had to do with the, the issues that we've already covered, um, standardizing the process for administering the suicide risk screening, um, developing a formal policy about expectations on the frequency of monitoring patients in the emergency department, ensuring their RCA and administrative inve investigations are conducted appropriately, um, ensuring their institutional disclosures are conducted appropriately, and then complying with um, reporting healthcare providers or healthcare professionals to state licensing boards when necessary. Um, the one thing we didn't cover that we made a recommendation on is um, there was an issue within this that um, was possibly what we would call interference with our inspection. We were notified by VA's Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection that the chief of the emergency department sent an email out to uh, a staff physician directing that physician on how to respond to the OIG questioning. And basically the response was, you, you should be responding with yes, no, I don't know, or I don't remember. And so again, you can imagine if if OIG is questioning someone and those were the responses they were getting, um, we would have very little information to make a determination about this investigation. So um, we had to, we actually went back and re-interviewed 11 different individuals um, to assess whether or not this email had any impact on their responses in, the, in their interviews with us. Um, we, did, we didn't find any um, changes in the, um, the responses of these individuals, but we still uh, directed the facility to conduct a fact-finding investigation to determine whether the emergency department chief's conduct was um, inconsistent with VA policy and federal regulations about prejudicial conduct. So, so given that, how how did the how did the uh, facility respond to the report? So they they you know again they had already done two uh, internal reviews, the RCA and the administrative investigation. So um, they concurred with all of our um, recommendations, um, you know, some of which they had already made um, internal recommendations to fix. I do know they, they've already started working on these processes. So again, writing a, a new policy is not um, as quick a process as it seems. Um, you know, these policies, again, have to have um, certain legal um, language in them and have to be reviewed by various different um, departments before they can actually be published to staff. So it does take a little bit of time to get all of that 
review done and the appropriate language put into those policies. And we can tr continue to uh, track these recommendations. We will track all of these recommendations until we, OIG, feels that um, the facility has done the appropriate steps to maintain any of the changes that they have suggested to for the, for the recommendation. Great. Well, Trina, again, it's uh, another, another uh, very tragic report. Uh, with many learning points, thank you very much uh, for joining me and helping helping walk us through this this report. Thanks, Fred. I appreciate it. Uh, as mentioned in this uh, podcast, uh, you can submit a complaint to the VAOIG uh, by phone one eight hundred four eight 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 two four four, or you can go to our website www.va.gov forward slash oig slash hotline and fill out a, a, a hotline complaint there. However, if you are a veteran in crisis or someone who is concerned about one, please call the Veteran Crisis Line, dial 988, and then press 1. With that, I'll turn this podcast over to my co-host, Mary, and she'll provide the updates from our most recent uh, oversight work. Thanks, Fred. Deputy Inspector General David Case testified on July 12th before the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, or HVAC, Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. His testimony focused on the importance of H.R. 2733, the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General Training Act of 2023, which would mandate that all new VA personnel receive training on their responsibilities for reporting potential crimes and other wrongdoing, as well as how to engage with OIG oversight staff. It must be completed within the first year of employment. More than 385,000 established VA personnel have taken the training as of June 26, 2023, following a memo from Secretary McDonough, with overwhelmingly positive reviews. Mr. Case noted in his testimony that institutionalizing the OIG training would empower VA employees to report issues that impede the quality and timing of VA services and benefits received by veterans, their families, caregivers, and survivors. His written congressional statement has been added to the archive of congressional statements on our website, va.gov forward slash OIG. Watch the entire hearing on the committee's website. Stephen Bracci, director of the Claims and Medical Exams Inspection Division within the OIG's Office of Audits and Evaluations, testified on July 27th before the HVAC Subcommittee on Disability Assistance and Memorial Affairs. His testimony related to the medical exams for veterans who file claims for disability benefits, which provide critical evidence of a connection between the claim disability and the veteran's military service, and also help determine the degree of the disability severity. The resulting disability rating, in turn, defines the monthly monetary benefit the veteran receives. Mr. Bracci's testimony focused on findings and recommendations from three OIG reports that illustrate gaps and limitations on the Veterans Benefits Administration's oversight of contractors who perform the exams for VA. The first report is a comprehensive review that concluded the identified lack of VA oversight on contract exam providers' accuracy and lack of systemic corrective action put veterans at risk for inaccurate decisions. The other two reports describe more specific concerns, 
the need to better monitor the distance veterans must travel for exams, and two, to address the backlog of exams and errors from canceled exams that flowed from the pandemic. Mr. Bracci also discussed the impact the identified weaknesses can have on veterans' experience with the disability benefits claims process and the steps VA must take to effectively implement open OIG recommendations. This hearing can be viewed in its entirety on the committee's website. Now for some news from the Office of Investigations. A multi-agency investigation resulted in charges alleging that numerous defendants, including pharmacists, physicians, recruiters, and beneficiaries, participated in a scheme to defraud federal health care programs by billing non-reimbursable medications in compounded prescriptions. Co-conspirators from a compounding pharmacy in the Dallas-Fort Worth area recruited beneficiaries to visit specific physicians and receive a prescription for compounded pain medication. These prescriptions were filled by the pharmacy, who then fraudulently billed VA and other federal programs. This investigation revealed that the medications contained several non-reimbursable ingredients and that the pharmacy overcharged for the medications. After the pharmacy was reimbursed for the medication, the beneficiaries, physicians, and recruiters were then paid a percentage of the proceeds. The total loss to the government is estimated at over $75 million, including an approximately $3 million loss to VA. The owner of the compounding pharmacy was found guilty in the Northern District of Texas on charges of payment of kickbacks and conspiracy to launder monetary instruments. This investigation was conducted by the VA OIG, Defense Criminal Investigative Service, Department of Health and Human Services OIG, FBI, and the Department of Labor OIG. Another multi-agency investigation resulted in charges alleging that multiple defendants participated in a scheme to defraud federal health care programs by submitting more than 1,700 claims for services that were not rendered, as well as other claims that were administered by individuals who were not appropriately licensed to perform the treatment. The total loss to the government is approximately $413,000. Of this amount, the loss to VA is about $250,000. Two defendants were indicted in the Middle District of Georgia on charges of health care fraud and conspiracy to obstruct justice. One of the defendants was also indicted for aggravated identity theft. This investigation was conducted by the VAOIG, Defense Criminal Investigative Service, Department of Health and Human Services OIG, and the Georgia Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. From November 1993 to July 2023, a defendant received VA dependency and indemnity compensation benefits intended for his deceased grandmother. The deceased beneficiary was a recipient of VA benefits due to the military service of both her husband and son. A review of the deceased beneficiary's bank records revealed that for nearly 30 years, the defendant used her VA benefits for his own personal expenses. The loss to VA is more than $340,000. Following an investigation by the VA OIG, the defendant pleaded guilty in the Western District of Missouri to theft of government property. A multi-agency investigation conducted by the VA OIG, 
Department of Labor, OIG, U.S. Postal Service, OIG, and the Defense Criminal Investigative Service resulted in charges alleging that a Texas company recruited injured federal workers by offering to assist in filing their claims with the Department of Labor's Office of Workers' Compensation Programs. The defendants allegedly funneled those employees to medical clinics where doctors wrote prescriptions for compounded medications in exchange for kickbacks from pharmacies. The co-conspirators allegedly billed the Department of Labor as well as the Department of Defense's TRICARE program for more than $126 million. The portion of the billed amount attributable to VA employees is approximately $1.3 million. Four defendants were sentenced in the Southern District of Texas to 150 months in prison, 11 years of supervised release, and restitution of $24 million. This month's featured report from the Office of Healthcare Inspections focuses on the West Haven VA Medical Center in Connecticut and how the facility's leaders failed in their response to an oxygen disruption. The OIG conducted a healthcare inspection to assess allegations regarding a disruption to the facility's oxygen line. The line became unavailable when a construction company cut it. While relying on portable tanks, a patient experienced an adverse event and ultimately died after a period of inadequate oxygen supply. Contributing factors included a lack of accessible equipment, education, and training. The OIG was unable to determine if the adverse event caused the patient's unresponsiveness or death. The report includes 12 recommendations related to communication, emergency preparedness, oversight, and response to the oxygen disruption. From the Office of Audits and Evaluations comes a report about the Northern Arizona VA healthcare system. The OIG inspected its information security to assess whether it met federal information security requirements and found deficiencies with configuration management, security management, and access controls. Configuration management issues could deprive users of reliable information access and risk unauthorized access or damage to critical systems. Also, the OIG identified almost twice as many devices on the network than the inventory listed. Weak access controls included missing video surveillance, inadequate fire control equipment, and insufficient climate controls. The OIG made six recommendations to the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer to improve controls at the healthcare system, and five recommendations to the system's director. The Comprehensive Healthcare Inspection Program, or CHIP, continues to be a critical element of the OIG's overall efforts to ensure that the nation's veterans receive high-quality and timely VA healthcare services. The inspections are performed approximately every three years for each facility. The OIG selects and evaluates specific areas of focus on a rotating basis. This month's CHIP reports focused on the VA Central California Healthcare System in Fresno. For more information about these and the other activities the VA OIG has been working on, go to our website at va.gov forward slash OIG. If you want to get emails whenever the VA OIG publishes a new report or issues a congressional statement, you can sign up with GovDelivery by going to our website and click on Email Alerts under the section labeled Stay Connected. 
Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more highlights next month. Thanks for listening. This has been an official podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. Veteran Oversight Now is produced by the Office of Communications and Public Affairs and is available at va.gov forward slash OIG. Tune in monthly to hear how the VA OIG serves veterans, their families, and caregivers through meaningful independent oversight. Check out the website for more on the VA OIG oversight mission, read current reports, and keep up to date on the latest criminal investigations. Report potential crimes related to VA, waste or mismanagement, potential violations of laws, rules or regulations, or risks to patients, employees, or property to the OIG online or call the hotline at 1-800-488-8244. If you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 and speak with a qualified responder now.